Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, about 20 years ago, when a couple of Norwegian friends were trying to figure out how to get their hands on a bunch of boating and climbing gear, they thought, what better way to get the gear we need for our adventures than by starting an online gear shop? Even though they didn't own a computer, they knew very little about the internet, and they knew nothing about e-commerce. But, and spoiler alert, Trigva and Runa's plan worked. They got the gear they needed, and then somehow over the next 20 years, they also built a very successful online shop and a brick-and-mortar operation that is flourishing today. And I promise you, after listening to this conversation, you are going to understand why we are so proud to count Vertical Playground in Optal, Norway, among our recommended shops. And furthermore, if this isn't all already intriguing enough for you, you are going to get to hear in this conversation about how the VPG guys met Matt Sturbins and then became very intimately involved with Forefront Skis. You're also going to get to hear a phenomenal origin story of the Forefront Raven, which is, of course, a ski that is still very near and dear to my heart. And you are going to get to learn a lot about the skiing and mountain biking around central Norway and some of the specific gear that they particularly like for that given area. Oh, and then at the very end of this episode, you are going to get to hear exactly why Trigva and Runa really, really have to come ski Crested Butte as soon as possible. And I mean it. And you're going to find out why. Now, we've got one pro tip for you. If you want to check out Vertical Playground's excellent website, but maybe you don't read Norwegian or read Norwegian very well, well then we suggest that you check out their site, which is vpg.no in the Google Chrome browser because Chrome's translation function is actually quite good. So again, you can check out their website at vpg.no. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by Avocado, and now... I am happy to say that you can check out the article on our website that I told you about last week, and we're calling it Jonathan's Sleep Experiment. And now I am still going to be fleshing out that article a good bit, I think, but on the website under the name Jonathan's Sleep Experiment, you'll be able to see exactly which avocado products I've been using, and there's going to be a number of other things that I've been doing and reading and listening to to try to get better at this whole sleep thing. And one of the things that I can tell you is that I do really love the avocado green mattress that I've been using. And in the write-up on the site, I'll tell you a bit more about the mattress that I had been using for the past couple of years prior to determining that I needed a new one, and why I settled on this avocado green mattress, and why it is working out incredibly well for me, and it might work out well for you. So anyway, check out that new article, and as I said, I'll keep fleshing it out as we get deeper into 
this whole sleep experiment. And do please let me know any tips or tricks that you maybe have found to be most effective. And now let's talk to Trigva Sanda and Rune Kavalsnes. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to be here with Trigva and Rune. We've actually just been having a, a good conversation here, and uh, I am excited for all of our listeners because I have a sense of some of the things we're going to be touching on, and it is pretty cool. But first of all, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Vertical Playground, what does the current operation look like? Rune, you want to care to? <laughs> well, we're a uh, we're, um, retailer here in uh, Uptar, small mountain resort in the middle of Norway. Uh, we're also doing uh, distribution and quite the big uh, player on uh, internet like web sales, uh, doing uh, all the gear you need for uh, the ski touring, climbing, free riding, and uh, white water paddling, and mountain biking, mountain biking. and running. Don't f- and blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't forget the mountain biking and running, Runa. Um, some, some of us uh, some of us really don't want you to forget the mountain biking. Um, Trigva, how long has Vertical Playground been around? We we will dive in a little further here uh, in terms of the origin story because it's a really interesting one. But how long is how long has the shop been in operation? So we were founded in early 2000. When did you two first meet? Uh, I don't know how this translates to English, but we we met on uh, like the gymnasium. Is that high school or yeah, like last year in school or we actually both did an extra year because we were skiing a bit too much. So uh, we divided the last years into two years so we could ski a bit more. Uh, Rune was skiing Telemark at the time, and I was ski racing, uh, and uh, like both had an interest for mountains and for climbing, ski touring. We kind of uh, just clicked. I feel like this is like a modern day love story. When the ski racer met the telemarker, you know, we could, we could, we should, we should maybe write the movie script on this. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, was the first meeting like you both looked at each other weird? Like, why do you do? Why do you go downhill on snow that way? And then you just kind of figured it out from there? No, I, di- I didn't really hang out with telemarkers at the time, but I needed help with my, uh, my physics class. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> I actually have a very similar story, at least in terms of needing help with, with physics homework. That's kind of... Um, that became an important part in the development of one of my longest lifelong friendships. Um, so shout out to Steve Buss, who I would badger to death uh, to help me with physics homework back in the day. So we kind of have this one in common. <laughs> okay, so you guys meet, you find out both are pretty passionate about skiing and pick it up from there. Yeah, and like, uh, and still, well, we climbed a lot together that spring and summer. And uh, at the time, my father was traveling a lot through Eastern Europe. So he brought home some climbing gear uh, for me. And uh, then like I was uh, offering to Rune and some other friends. And we just figured out that we should like 
do an import business with with climbing gear so we can uh, and like i think at first uh, the motivation was to to get hold of good gear for ourselves this was like at a time where you couldn't go into the local sports store or even a sports store in in our closest city in trondheim and buy like trad climbing gear or ski touring gear. It was like normal alpine skiing gear. There was no like real selection of free ride skis in the stores. And we just like figured we would start out with all this gear we needed ourselves and maybe help out a few friends as well. Runa, is that how you remember the origin story here? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't remember the part about the physics. But uh, <laughs> physics plus, but uh, yeah, basically this was pretty much it. Uh, we started, uh, I was working at the school, the local school at the time, and uh, they had one computer so uh, for the whole uh, school. Uh, so we borrowed it uh, in the evenings and we, we uh, did make our first web shop. So that was the start of it. And uh, we can anything about computers, but uh, somehow with some help from uh, from some friends, we had this some kind of a web shop up and running. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. So basically a couple of dirtbag climbers decide that they need to get themselves access to some climbing gear. So you decide we ought to start an online shop except we don't know anything about computers and there's sort of only one computer like a public computer that there is that we even have access to did i did i hit the most of the points here yeah <laughs> what year is this 2000 yeah i think this was in uh, yeah 99 2000 like officially the company was launched in 2000 like but it was maybe the summer of 99 where the id came up and like when we started the work to register a company and stuff did you already have your current name back then well it's uh, you, you know we were young and dumb and uh, didn't like know how to start a, a shop so but of course we didn't have money to start a real shop so we figured like that uh, online was uh, was the way to go for people without money and and knowledge and this was back back in the early days of of online sales so we kind of could get away with it you know it, it, yeah the, the smartphone came in 2007 like people were having offline or like no internet on their phones and uh, maybe you parents couldn't use the phone in the house when you were at uh, the internet and and stuff like that so the first web shop we had was pretty basic. We didn't even have a cart. Like you had to write an email to order something. And we didn't get oh. many orders either, <laughs> as you figured. Which was okay, because that wasn't really the point, uh, as I understand yeah. the story. But hopefully it did Hopefully it did work and that you were getting yourselves access to some equipment. Did that part of your plan work? For sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so when... Did you actually move into a physical space, a brick and mortar shop? Ah, uh, two thousand and three, maybe. We okay. did. We had it up and running yeah. for some years before we had the physical shop. Mm. Okay, that's not too bad for for a couple of dummies who don't know anything about. I, I'm trying to quote you what you said. Like if you if you're young and dumb, do it on the internet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's <laughs> only you figured it out pretty quick. Yeah, it was like step by step, uh, and we uh, did um, 
for sure quite a few bad turns there but uh in the end it uh it uh, turned out quite well well yeah like i think you come a long way with like interest and passion so yeah so the the skills to like manage a company do logistics uh figure out the internet a bit like that's thing you things you can learn like at at least that's what we like you never get to the full overview, but that stuff I think we have improved a lot on, and uh, and the passion was always there. So yeah, for sure. Here, here. Let's talk a little bit more about your location. So first of all, the name of the town where you are now is Uptar. Uptar. Okay. What should <laughs> those of us who have not had the pleasure of visiting Uptar know about the area? Well, it's uh, it's. Uh in the middle of Norway, like a bit southwest of Trondheim, uh, on the like on the very brink or like the on the on the east side of the coastal mountains and the fjordlands. So we have a little bit of everything uh, with uh, with both like we're not too close for the sea. We're from the sea. We're in the mountains. There's a ski resort in town. That's uh, from like Norwegian standards are quite known, and um, there's good mountain biking. Um, there's good whitewater kayaking. There's also awesome ski touring uh, in the mountains just west of us, and um, there's a lot of sheep grazing here during summer. <laughs> How about cows? What's your cow situation there? Uh, there there's definitely more sheep, but there's okay, a, a couple cows. cows as well. <laughs> right. We actually were talking about cows earlier, and uh, I was telling you, I'm, I'm fond of them. I have them in my backyard, so um, possibly wearing equipment ba made by a colleague of yours. A story yeah. for a different time, maybe. That's maybe a different <laughs> Gear 30 episode. Let's talk a little bit about the ski touring culture. You guys have a pretty interesting sort of take on this in terms of perhaps, you know, at least where you are and in your respective your, kind of your world similarities or differences to maybe some of the other ski touring that is common around Europe. Talk a bit about this fact. Uh, well, I would say uh, the tradition here in Norway uh, is to go skiing with Nordic skis. So uh, it's uh, when I was young, we were all going on cross country skis up on the top of the mountains and trying to get down again uh, without breaking any legs or anything. Uh, <laughs> so it's always been a culture for, uh, for um, skiing in, in the mountains, at least on the, on the western part, in the western parts of Norway. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say like that's the thing with Norway, that uh, skiing was always popular. And in southeastern Norway, where most people live, like there's a very strong uh cross-country culture but uh, like here in the mid and western parts of norway where we have uh, like big and steep mountains there was always a ski touring um culture but on the equipment of the time so when we grew up like ski touring equipment was really rare and hadn't really made it over to norway so we had like kind of these evolved nordic skis that was a bit wider and with steel edges like and then eventually Telmark skis that were the ski touring equipment of the time. 
So uh, ski touring, like wheel ski touring equipment, like made it over to Norway and started to sell a bit about the days when we founded the company. That was one of the articles that we wanted to bring to Norway. <laughs> yeah, and you were saying that it's pretty interesting. While there is probably, we could say, a very old and traditional ski touring culture, in your neck of the woods, you guys actually were pretty early on, for lack of a better term, what we might call sort of free ride touring, or I don't know, we just kind of call it backcountry skiing now. But you guys were actually early on that front. And and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, it's in in Norway, like uh, motorized traveling in the nature is very, very restricted. So there's, you're not allowed to go heli skiing. Uh, you can't go into the backcountry with a snowmobile or an ATV. So, uh, and a lot of and it's not like the alps where they built lifts on all the steepest mountains i think uh, most of the resorts in norway are on a bit of tamer mountains and resorts so um to access like the coolest terrain i think uh, freeride touring came up on the radar very early as a part it, it merged with uh, backcountry skiing and freeriding merged at a really early uh, stage because that was how you could um, could access some of the coolest terrain. Interesting. I mean, that said, I mean, so I can imagine you guys all looking around at certain ranges and being like, well, we can't take a sled over there and there's no chairlift on top and we can't take a heli. We need to figure out how to go get there. But it's probably, we shouldn't give too much of the impression of like, well, just given the lack of motorized equipment that was allowed you know to be either put on or used to get to some of these places you kind of needed to have the individuals who were like we're going to get out there yeah for sure and and i like i think like uh, the guys that were a few a uh, few years older than us like five maybe ten years older were like the real pioneers of this but uh, basically you were uh like skidding up and skiing down the easiest slopes of uh, of uh, different mountains and looking at these really cool places around you uh, while you were skiing in the resorts and then when you like get on your alpine touring gear and you do this easy slope and you look around and with this equipment a whole lot of new possibilities open up like you figure you can make a detour or like just make a um a new line instead of where you usually go with your nordic touring equipment like there was just new possibilities where you looked i think that's maybe the start of it okay so you guys have your online shop going 2003 ish we've get a physical space we talk about you were pretty early in on some of the more you know capable touring equipment to go help get you out into these cool ski areas that you're seeing around you. And then at some point in the story, you meet Matt Sturbins. <laughs> what? Okay. <Yeah. laughs> uh, please explain. Well, in, uh, in our ski, local ski resort, there was this, uh, it was hosted by Norwegian ski magazine, Free, yeah. Free Flutes that had this mega park event going. 
and uh, it was not maybe not a mega park from today's standard. It was basically one uh, groomed uh, big jump and a lot of backcountry features. <laughs> and uh, but like uh, the founder of this uh, event, he um, he uh, had some connection with Matt Sturbins as a photographer, and uh, he was really keen to get the forefront team over and uh, Matt Sturbins came over with Steel Spence and maybe yeah, Vincent so. Dorian uh, and they were skiing here and um, like we met and we talked a bit we were maybe not so much into freestyle skiing uh, me and Rune personally at least but uh, we like had this interest for freeride and we heard that Eric Jorlevson which was starting to be like a name in big mountain skiing was on forefront skis and he had the ski coming but they were on a different distribution but when they went bankrupt like Matt Sturbins called me actually one night I was bouldering and my phone called and it was an American number and he said hello this is Matt Sturbins like I need I my distributor in Norway is bankrupt and I need help with uh, with getting skis out to the Norwegian crowd and like to me it was like great opportunity because we were really into avalanche equipment we had Dinafit bindings uh, after we merged with this uh, uh, a guy called Trun which is still in the company uh, that had Avigear and and Dinafit bindings and then uh, we always wanted like a freeride brand of skis in our portfolio and when Matt Sturbins uh, uh, called, we really found the tone and uh, and like agreed that we should start up doing Forefront as well. What do you mean by sort of start doing Forefront as well? Well, to, to distribute it to Norway. So we both had it like in our own store, but we also distributed it to other stores around Got Norway. Okay. And, uh, and like... Also, we had uh, Matt Sturbins is a really cool and inspirational guy. So we kind of found the tone and uh, he came over for Mega Park and for some uh, uh, special permission heli skiing with uh, the spring after. And then I went to Utah and yeah, the relationship evolved a bit. Got it. And no. At some point, also we got involved in in a bit in the forefront ski development because uh, uh, Hoji had uh, um, had his uh, his pro model going with forefront, and he was planning the renegade, and he was uh, in our town on a on a film tour promoting. I guess it was the MSP film he was in back when he was on a Norwegian clothing brand, Helly Hansen. Uh, and when he was in Optar, like we figured we'd take him out to this uh, local ski builder at Eviskis. And they like had a lot of to talk about. They're really uh, Andre at Eviskis and Hoji is, is like really passionate ski nerds. And I think I happen to be in that category <laughs> as well. So uh, we like uh, really found the tone of around ski development and he came back later to like dial the flex on this new renegade that he was thinking about and uh, as he was here working on the renegade i think it was for a couple of weeks we went ski touring uh, in um, in the mountains west of here in sundalsfella 
and at one particular uh, trip uh, when we was like this i think it's four and a half thousand feet or something from uh, from where you start to the peak and there's some bushwhacking at the start and there's some steep skinning and we were uh, we were uh, on hoji skis with tech bindings and we just figured like this setup works pretty well but the skis are for this kind of wind affected snow and uh, and long approach and and uh, and pretty long trip into the backcountry these skis are, are bigger and heavier than we need to so like what would be the ideal ski and i think that that very trip was like the birth of the idea of the raven ski which we like developed next and i was pretty involved with matt and, and uh, hoji on that project so <clears throat> Yeah, so this is the part in our conversation where I guess I have to say, you know, thank you uh, for being involved in the development of uh, one of my favorite all-time touring skis. Um, that's a very cool part of the story. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big deal. And and I I was saying to you before we started recording, like I'm still really proud of that that review of the Raven I wrote, just because at the time it still kind of felt like. I don't know, sort of, yeah, reverse camber. We maybe are used to hearing about how that design can work on like a really, really wide ski. And so it still felt a little bit like it was a sort of novelty or maybe even like a bad idea. And I thought that I thought that my review of that ski did a pretty good job of laying out like this is what you get from this design and this is what it can offer. And you said, actually, you've read that review and you think I was pretty, wasn't too off mark or something. So that, that makes me feel good knowing that I'm talking to one of the guys that was there, uh, you know, thinking about that and talking about that design and development in the first place. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think like, uh, I think the review is good because, uh, when the idea behind the ski was not to make like uh, another uh, like uh, lighter uh, and a bit more uh, side cut gs ski that would like make snappy carby turns uh, it was designed to ski wild snow you know that so and, and i think gs skis as much as i love to ski them on the groomers they're not def they're normally not like the best design for um, for backcountry, especially when you go into steep, exposed, three-dimensional terrain, or uh, or like when you have a bit of uh, wind-affected powder and snow like that, it's it was made to be a ski that can take you really far into the backcountry, and that can traverse a icy or wind-packed slope when you're skinning up without being too wide, but at the same time, like float very good in powder for its size and be nimble between the trees and like whenever it you can sink the ski a bit into wild snow it, it starts performing um, as long as it's not too deep which i think is the case both in scandinavia and the east coast a lot of the time <laughs> okay runa let's talk kind of more generally i guess about some of the gear that is pretty popular in your area. So maybe we start with like ski width, you know, given your location, how, how wide or narrow are people going? And is it common to be doing sort of shorter tours with multiple laps or 
in your area are people tending to go out for a pretty long day? Describe the current scene. Well, um, 95 mil is for sure the skivit that most people uh, are choosing. Uh, you don't see like in the Alps where you see a lot of uh, guys with skinny clothes and very skinny skis. Uh, here you s- even those that grown up older people are doing a bit wider skis. Um, we for sure uh, usually go uh, on the top of the mountain. <laughs> so it's usually a long day out. Uh, the mountains around here are, um, well, around 1,000 altitude meters in feet. That I'm around 3,000, is it? 3,000, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, so uh, the fit ones are doing multiple laps. Uh, I usually uh, quite okay with one. <laughs> you so, got to get back and run that shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, yeah, you don't see that um, there are like a quite similar group. Yeah, we are uh, we are not that divided. So uh, if you're uh, if you're even if you're a good free rider, or if you are working walking uh, quite fast, or walking slow, or whatever, you more or less use the same equipment. Talk about a couple. So you said 95 millimeters. That was a pretty specific answer. Like that tends to be, <laughs> you know, kind of the the bullseye uh, in your area. What are some of the specific skis of that width that are popular or working well? Well, well I, I'd li- like to add like it's more diverse. Like you see skis from, from race width and up. But uh, I'd say like I definitely agree with Rune that uh, 95-ish is the golden waist. Yeah. So where you see the most sales, but we definitely see 110 skis touring and we see 88 skis, but I totally agree. Like the majority of, of, uh, of uh, customers choose something in that area of 95 millimeter waist. Name a couple models for me. Uh, Fulkel Rise Beyond is, is super popular. And the VTA 98, like the procedure, it was also very popular. I'd say also like the the um, Black Cross Carmox Freebird is one of the benchmark skis that are super popular. So yeah, maybe the Atomic Backland 95 is a quite popular ski. But the f- first two and of course K2 Wayback 96 is also one of the top sellers. That's interesting. And I think, I think in the Gear 30 conversation I had with McKenna Peterson recently, I know I was talking with McKenna about the Wayback skis, series of skis. I don't remember if we, that was on record or off record, but this is still the case that that is an underappreciated series of skis, maybe in the United States. It sounds like the Europeans have figured it out that these are solid skis. But so it's interesting to hear you you mention that in the mix. No, b- both the uh, Wayback 106 and the 96 are, are definitely popular skis in Norway. I'm curious to hear if you guys kind of have your favorite go-to skis or if you have to sort of constantly be trying different stuff. 
which is sort of what we have to do here at Blister. But so how much do you, are you constantly on new stuff versus like, no, we get to, we get to spend a lot of days out on our personal favorite gear. Well, it's a bit of both. We're testing quite a lot, uh, but uh, I still do the Forefront Ravens quite a lot. <laughs> and we also, we have this local ski maker, Andre, who made his Evi skis, which are pretty good. So I also ski, uh, have a setup of Evi skis. So uh, yeah, that's basically basically my two models. Try to top that. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I've definitely skied the Raven a lot as well, but I've been uh, I've been um, also skiing Evi skis. So I um, and I test a lot of skis uh, from distributors. So, but when it comes to boots, I definitely have a personal setup. I ski Dynafit boots. I've had, I have a pair of Hoji free boots and I just also changed my Hoji Pro Tour boots, which was my light setups to a pair of Radical Pro boots. So, and I do a lot of uh, customization and personalization of the boots uh, to, to, to really get them fitted. And I also have, have like, uh, kind of, uh, my own setup that I'm familiar with on bindings. Uh, so I've uh, on my lighter skis, super narrow light skis, which are 99 at the waist. I ski with uh, a set binding, but this binding I do most of my skiing on is uh, is the rotation 12 now to be changed to the rotation 14 from Dynafit, which I have on my 108 waist uh, Evi skis. I have a and that's the skis I use the most. So Hoji free boots, rotation 12 uh, bindings and 108 waist carbon handmade ski. Got it. What was the, you, you mentioned your 99 millimeter touring ski is a lightweight ski? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a heavy ski that's maybe an evolution of the uh -huh. Raven design. <laughs> uh-huh. It was called a silver, and it's a, it's a ninety nine waist carbon ski with a bit of more side cut, but still with uh, with a long rocker front and rear, and uh, a pretty long taper as well. But maybe a bit shorter taper than the original Raven. Okay, huh? Runa, what's your boot and bindings setup? Just your personal. We're just talking personal favorites now. I'm do on. Both my skis, I have the set binding. It's working perfect for me because it's super lightweight and I still, I find it very stable. Uh, I never had any pre-release pre or anything about it. So it's just super durable. So uh, super happy about that. Uh, also as Trigva, I'm on Dinafit Hoji boots uh, and I think it's at the moment, really the best solution, both because the walking function is super good, uh, but also the they ski very well. So uh, for me, that's the perfect setup. Trygva, we were talking a bit about, but we were really talking about the category of pin bindings in particular. I was about to say lightweight bindings, but we were kind of, it was really more just about different pin bindings. 
I thought you had a pretty interesting take on w- one element about the rotation, DNFIT rotation bindings that you like in particular. And I, I wanted to kind of give you the floor and talk a little bit about why you were saying you just really have come to trust those bindings. The floor is yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, it, it's a binding that's... Uh, well, I, I can just say, first of all, like I'm, I think I like, I'm a quite powerful skier coming yeah. from a racing background. Um, I'm prepared to believe you. So... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> but I, uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I've had in the past like issues with uh, with pre-releasing, uh, and uh, I felt like with uh, the rotation technology that was first introduced on the Beast binding from Dynafit, uh, that it really uh, gave me some extra confidence on the binding staying on without locking the the toe levers which i don't really like to do because uh, sometimes you like fall and need the skis to release and of course i also do it sometimes in really exposed terrain but usually i ski with them open also in when i ski aggressively and in a bit of exposed terrain but the the main but there's a lot to there's a lot of things I like about rotation binding. First, it's it's a really mature technology. It's uh, it's a binding that's been around and been evolved several times. So it's it's a super strong and reliable build in itself. But also, I've found that almost all my pre-releases came from uh, from uh, the toe binding opening up on the outside on my foot on the weighted ski like in a turn and especially on repeated strikes from the terrain to the ski Uh, and i think it's the only tech binding that really does something to to avoid this and uh, it it comes from the rotation i think it's a really great feature but it's pretty hard to explain in in marketing language in a good way but what what it actually does is that the, the sideways release is controlled from the heel in a tech binding and uh, the elasticity in this is when like you you hit some shatter and stuff the the foot will move a little bit and get back to center that's the elasticity of the system but on a normal tech binding that will like force the claws on the toe piece to open a bit and then it's a lot more exposed to falling off from that second strike on a shattery series of strikes so what the rotation does is is keeping the claws totally shut on your foot even though your foot moves a little bit sideways and back into center uh, so i never had the rotation 12 pre-release on the front binding for me and that's like over years of skiing it it has given me more and more confidence in the binding so to me it's a favorite both by the confidence build, built through experience and also to the, through the reliability of the binding that I can really trust it going into the backcountry, uh, even on really steep exposed roads. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and we, were, we, we don't need to rehash this whole part of the conversation, but 
<laughs> I did want to ask you, in part because of your strong race background, I have, you know, I have had this, I guess, very specific and, you know, particular complaint with some Dina fits where it just felt like I was losing power transfer out of the exit of a turn. And you and I were kind of speculating a bit about that. And I was just very curious. I was like, have you never felt that or experienced that? And because when we were talking about that versus say a G3Z or an ATK binding or something like that. And, and I do want to say for the record, I completely agree with you. Like it is a mature technology. I think that's bonus points when first and foremost, when we're talking about backcountry skiing, we ought to be thinking safety first. Second, I've always maintained Dina fits just go uphill really well in terms of the riser systems and the rest. It feels dialed. So I have always had this one particular issue and you, um, I think just articulated well, it's like, man, uh, all I know is I don't pre-release in rotation bindings, which is an issue you've had in the past. So when you're like, yeah, I have more confidence on exposed lines, well, then this all makes a lot of sense. But we were kind of speculating a little bit about what I was feeling. And you were saying, I think I, I think I have felt that, or I don't know, let me, let me, do, let me give you the floor once again, and <laughs> then we'll move on. But uh, yeah, well, uh, like when you were saying that you feel like the lack of power releasing, I, I don't necessarily agree with you that this is different from a set or an ATK or, or like most bindings with a tech heel. To me, I, I can relate to what you say, but for me, it comes from the narrowness of the pins going into the heel. That like the, the, the edge pressure on the heel part of the ski uh, relies heavily on uh, on the toe claws and the uh, torsional stiffness of, of your boot sole. So like when I come in hot on harder than expected snow or uh, ice chunk or something, I definitely feel with the tech bindings that I have less grip under my heel uh, than I do with uh, with one that presses yeah. the heel down like the tecton yep. or the kingpin. But uh, then again, to me, it's a compromise. So uh, I just feel better about the, the toe binding than the two other ones that I just mentioned. Got it. So to me, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's really cool. And I, I, I love that we get to have different perspectives about some of these different pieces of equipment. And um, yeah, and then like listeners just get to kind of take the collective perspectives and, and, um, and think through yeah, it. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty helpful thing. Yeah, so interesting but 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 then again i wouldn't mind i wouldn't mind like uh racing the toe piece a bit to get like a, a less ramp angle on the rotation 12 that's that's one of the things i i hope to see from the huh. in the future <laughs> are, are you in general a ramp angle stickler no, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a ramp angle stickler. <laughs> I do notice difference in bindings, but I can, I can, uh, I can ski different ramp angles. So, uh, like when I say I like something, I'm not really, uh, what do you call it, uh, like a very strong believer in that being the only way I can ski. Because, like, you can adapt the gear to your needs, but you can also adapt to the gear. That's. Uh, <laughs> So, but, uh, but yeah, my suggestion is that with less ramp angle, it would be a better binding. Gotcha. 
Okay, so we've done quite a bit of talking about skiing, and it sounds like we've got a pretty good handle on what you guys are up to at Vertical Playground during the winter. What about in the summer? Is mountain biking kind of your primary business in the summer, or is it a pretty even mix between mountain bikes and mountain bike equipment or and or hiking gear? What does the non-winter season look like for you guys? Well, climbing equipment is like a really important the whole year actually now with with the indoor climbing scene and everything. But of course, like uh, and and also trad climbing booming a bit in Norway during the the, the pandemic. But uh, mountain biking is definitely a big part of our summer business and. and Always like a bigger, like all the things you mentioned are important part of vertical playground today. But, uh, you know, you have to sell a heck of a lot of hiking shoes to make up the turnover of one trail bike or enduro bike. (laughs) And talk a bit more about the mountain biking scene where you guys are. Well, um, there's a good and uh, and quite uh, old mountain biking scene in Norway. Um, It's been both downhill riding and uh, and also cross country and like over the last few years it's last few years like i'm on a 10-year perspective i'm starting to get old here (laughs) but but anyway like you can see uh, that uh, it was like from the start when people raced cross country on saturday and downhill on on sunday it got very diverse and now you can see like those two disciplines meeting a bit again in, in trail biking and enduro biking and from uh, from our village of Uptar there was uh, uh, built a bike park in the resort in the summer but uh, it kind of didn't really take off so it was later closed but then like the trail bikes and enduro bikes had become more and more popular so you weren't really dependent on the lift anymore and today there's uh, there's a really strong enduro and trail biking scene in Otto, uh which is uh, and also like regional in in mid-norway or nationally even i'd say so but especially for like our store it's we can see customers from all of mid-norway coming for uh, for uh, trail and enduro bikes and and equipment to do these activities, yeah. Runa, do you want to add to what Trigva has been saying about sort of vertical playground today and sort of the business side of thing or the evolution of that? Yeah, well, uh, as we said earlier, we started like totally amateurs uh, and now uh, we're about uh, $20 million turnover annually. So um, we're starting to getting serious. Well, and maybe just before I let you guys go, are you starting to get some snow in the area? Yeah, like we had uh, we had a heavy snowfall even downtown, so it was like 40 centimeters of snow on uh, on the ground here. So we were uh, we, we had a, a yeah, like it was enough snow to go ski touring. So we did. And then the snow went away and away again. So now it's like eight, eight degrees Celsius and uh, and no snow outside. But yeah, I think uh, I think the second wave of winter is is about huh. to. Approach. I love it though. You got that first kind of temporary snow. You already got the ski tour in. It's a, it sounds like 
after all these years, you guys are still doing it the right way. So this is this is good. I was going to ask just the COVID question. I guess from everything you're saying, I mean, with such a with such a ski touring focus, I mean, you're not having to deal with big resort populations, maybe per se. I mean, help us understand what kind of impact that has had or what you're kind of expecting for this coming winter. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 to be honest, like from a business point of view, the, the COVID has been fortunate for us. Of course, like in Norway, like everywhere else, it's uh, it's it's been a hard and tough time for many. But uh, but for a sh- online shop selling backcountry equipment, that's been pretty fortunate because people have been going out in the backcountry and shopping online. So it's uh, yeah, from a business perspective, it's it's been good for us. Like we we had the equipment to what people were actually allowed and and uh, and asked to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so good for you guys from a business point of view and good for all of your customers from a physical and mental health point of view. Let's talk a bit about the future of Vertical Playground. So we've you've given us a good sense of the origin story and you know where things have gone over these past 21 years, but let's talk a bit more about like I don't know, today going forward in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, uh, well, like, uh, like uh, uh, well, at least we like to state that bringing like this specialized adventure uh, gear into a shop and, and online, we were one, maybe the original yeah. one to do that in Norway. But it's, it's not necessarily unique anymore. There's more people doing what we have been doing. And, uh, but like one way to like make sure that we have a place in the future is to evolve on like the service part of things to, to help people customize their boots, do suspension service on their bikes, service electric bikes to, to repair skis, to repair uh, broken buckles or even cuffs on, on ski boots. So, so that's been really important to us to, to, to provide like the best possible service to keep the gear that you invested in going. Yeah. So a strong service bent now, probably that will continue to be the case. And I think maybe what I heard you say is it will need to continue to be the case. Yeah, definitely. It, it's like, uh, I, I think like the... Um the the competition from uh, from players on the online store will be harder and harder and the market gets more and more globalized but like the things we can offer at the regional or local uh, or maybe even national uh, level is to is to help people out with like the service that needs to be done physically so uh, and that's also where maybe the competence of like our employees which is a community of people that do these sports can really shine. So that's something we've been working hard on, on evolving from, from day one, but we also see as one of the really important ways to, to go yep. into the future. Absolutely. Runa, anything to add on that front? Uh, well, um, apart uh, from like the service uh, bit is um, important for the customers. It's quite important for us as well, because 
when we uh, are uh, struggling with our Excel sheets to go down to the workshop and just fix a boot, it's very satisfying. So um, that's for sure <laughs> something <Yeah. laughs> we like to, uh, to do in the future as well. Yeah, but Rune, honestly, we don't get to do it enough because, like, we're we're not as fast and effective as as the those guys in the couple. Yeah, we can, we can still do it for fun. <laughs> so they're telling you, get out of here, get back to the spreadsheets. Yeah, so. we, uh, we we got this. That's that's funny, huh? Well, gentlemen, um, this has been really fun. Uh, I, I always enjoy these conversations where we get to learn more about a place and connect with passionate skiers and climbers and mountain bikers, etc. And I love the origin story. Um, it's so cool. You, you know, here we are 21 years later, you're running a very successful shop in Norway and it all started because you just needed to get your hands on some gear. <laughs> I, I think everybody yeah. <laughs> listening to this conversation will, uh, very much appreciate that and probably be raising a glass to you, uh, to, to hear that origin story. So, um, yeah, we're, we're proud to, to have you among our recommended shops. And I told you at the start, I told you at the start that I was probably going to end up saying this because I am, I'm lucky. I, I get to talk to such interesting people in all these different places. And I always get off of these conversations and it's like, okay, well, I now have to put this on the list of places I need to get to at some point. Um, but I mean, my God, you were there in the development of the Raven. I mean, I feel like I have to, it's the least I can do, right? Is to, to get out to your neck of the woods and, and walk around a little bit where, um, you know, one of my favorite products, you know, kind of the birth of the idea, you know, took place there. So if that's, if that's not a good enough excuse to get out there, I don't know what is. Well, it's, uh, it's been a good time being, being here. So, and if we're lucky with uh, the conditions, we could even, even go visit the mountain bear. The Raven ID was actually birthday. Okay. <laughs> See, this is good. This is going to have to go near the top of the top of the list now. And Runa and I were talking a little bit, you know, scheming about how to maybe get you guys out to Crested Butte. Runa hasn't skied in the U.S. And I, right, Runa, is do yeah. I have that right? Just climbed here. That's so right. We were thinking. <laughs> we were thinking maybe once the kids get a bit older. We just schedule like two weeks of business meetings slash skiing. Is that yeah? Yeah. 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 I, I, actually, I, I've been wanting wanting to go to to Crested Butte for a long time. When I was a kid, uh, my friend's big brother uh, came back from from ski bombing U.S. giving me a T-shirt that said, uh, "Our sticks and stones may break your bones, but our black ones <laughs> kick ass." Crested Butte. <laughs> <laughs> i want to see that t-shirt i don't think i've seen one of those t-shirts around here we might we might need to bring that back yeah no it, it's true story i don't think i have it anymore but i, you I did. wore it for years okay you know? we'll like, see now yeah I, I was like 15 16 when i got this t-shirt and i thought it was this really cool thing <laughs> okay well now we have multiple reasons why <laughs> i need to get out to your neck of the woods and, and you need to kind of make good on on this on the t-shirt you used to rock this would be fun to connect and uh we'll work on this we'll work on this but for now i need to let you guys go get dinner um this is uh we're wrapping up it's 11 a.m here in crested butte but that makes it where are we at now in norway what time is it now 
6 p.m. Dinner time. Dinner time. So, hey, this has been really fun. Thank you, guys. Um, Good luck. Keep up the good work. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay, it is time now for our What We're Celebrating segment. Um, It is currently Thursday night at 11.31 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And I am now holding in my hand just a little dram, a little bit of Whistle Pig 10-year-old whiskey with one cube. I'm not going to lie. This has been a pretty long week. I don't know. Well, actually, my goal was to try to be in bed by 11.30 p.m. tonight. I'm already missed that time by one minute. So I've got a little making up to do on the sleep front. It's been a really busy week, but... I am happy to report it's been another week with a lot of very cool developments. And um, I know I guess I say this a lot, but it's always true. We've got just some cool things that we're going to be able to tell you more about and that we're going to be rolling out soon on the site and some stuff not on the site. Interesting, right? Anyway, uh, this week, I think what I want to single out for celebration in particular, frankly is that Cody Townsend and Alex Honnold somehow managed to stay alive during their attempt of Mount Whitney. Now, I take it that virtually everybody listening to this already saw the latest episode that Cody released of The 50 Project. I have to confess, I talked to Cody like shortly after this actually happened in real life, but I hadn't seen the episode till like yesterday. And watching it, I was myself like, I hope Cody doesn't die. I mean, like, I knew that he didn't die, but I still was like, this was a mess. And then I was like, I kind of also know Alex is alive, but still watching it, you're like, Alex, Cody, like, please don't kill Alex, our national treasure. Please, Cody, don't do that. So anyway, I thought it was remarkable. It was super fun and hilarious. Spoiler alert, they both did survive, which is fantastic. And just a really fun thing, but I think it also makes us a terrible person if you were laughing a lot watching this like I was because we were just kind of watching people suffer. So I don't know. That's complicated. We might need to talk about that in the way that we talk about secession on the Blister podcast. Um, Anyway, I don't know, but I thought it was great and really fun, and I'm glad they're both okay. And I am raising my glass then to Cody and Alex. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to both Trigva and Runa for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again on Monday over on our Blister podcast, where you are going to get to hear the terrific conversation that I had earlier this week with Angel Collinson. So stay tuned for that. You are not going to want to miss it, and we will catch you over on the Blister Podcast. Bye, everybody. Have a great weekend.